Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Trial Tested is a discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Dave Paul, and I will be your host for today's episode. It's my privilege today to be interviewing David Boys. I first became interested in David Boys when I was in Manhattan, David. I was in a Strand bookstore in Greenwich Village. On the bottom floor, they have a used law book section. I know that bookstore. <laughs> I was down there, left my family to just wander around in the law books, and I found your book, and I bought it for like $7.83 or something <laughs> like that, and I read it. I'm so looking forward to having a conversation with you because your career intrigues me in lots of different kinds of ways, so welcome. Well, thank you. Your education begins at University of Redlands. You grew up in rural Illinois. My recollection is your dad was a teacher and you thought about being a teacher as well. And you were drawn to University of Redlands for debate. Is that right? That's right. I had been a high school debater and the University of Redlands had hosted a major debate tournament throughout the time I was in high school. So I was familiar with the university, and when I decided to go back to school, that was a logical place to go. It's a great school, and it's a beautiful campus. There's a pivot, it looks like, from University of Redlands to Northwestern, then Yale, then NYU. It feels like a pivot in a, and I'm not trying to say anything negative to University of Redlands, and I know you support them. Was there a shift in you? There was. When I was growing up, I always knew I wanted either to be a high school American history teacher like my father or a lawyer like Perry Mason. And when I went to the University of Redlands, I initially was thinking of becoming a teacher. And I did not go directly from high school to college. I worked for a little while between high school and college. And when I went back to school, my goal initially was to become a teacher. I then, when I was at Redlands, one of the things I discovered was that at that point in time, you could go to law school without graduating from college. If you had three years of college credit, you could go to law school. And a number of law schools that I was interested in, Northwestern, Stanford, would permit you to count your first year of law school both as your first year of law school and as your last year of college. Nice. And since I was a little older, and I was at that point I was married and I had a family, I was anxious to move along. And it seemed to me that it was a great idea to go to law school because one of the things that I was told that if I went to law school, I could still teach. And indeed, law school would be counted as a graduate degree. And in those days in California, how much you got paid as a public school teacher depended on the level of degrees that you had. So if I had both a bachelor's degree and a graduate degree, I would actually get paid a lot more money by the public school systems. So that seemed like a really good idea to me at the time. So I went to law school, still undecided as to whether I was going to teach or practice law. The tension between teaching as compared to becoming a lawyer, what drove the decision Eventually, what drove the decision once I got to law school was that I just fell in love with the law. It was something that I found to be challenging, exciting, 
it gave me an opportunity to do the kinds of things that I wanted to do in terms of moving society. It was a time of the civil rights movement. It was a time when law was really being used as a tool to open up a whole series of issues that had plagued the country for years in terms of discrimination, economic opportunities, and the like. So it was something where you had an opportunity really to move in the direction of social change and at the same time do something that was very interesting and earn a very good living. It seemed like a magical combination to me at the time. How old were you when you made that decision? I was in my early 20s. How's your relationship with the law today, 60 years later, your love of the law? It's still the same as it was 60 years ago. It's been a wonderful profession for me. I can't think of something that I would have enjoyed doing more or that I would have been better suited for. It is something that obviously has its frustrations from time to time. There's a lot of drudgery to it if you're going to actually do it well. But the ability to affect society, the ability to do justice, the ability to have an exciting job that you really love to go to work at and as I say, to earn a very good living for yourself and your family has been a magical opportunity. When you say drudgery for David Boys, what's the drudgery of the practice of law? The preparation. Nothing for me is more exciting than a trial or maybe occasionally an appellate argument. But other than Olympic athletes, I don't know of any profession where you spend a greater proportion of your time preparing and a smaller proportion of your time actually performing in the law. The number of hours that goes into a single hour or two of cross-examination is shocking. And there's no way to intuit the facts. There's no way to learn the facts, understand the facts, mold the facts, present the facts without hour and hour of research and analysis. And the same thing is true for the law. The time that you spend really reading the cases, thinking about the cases, trying to get at the heart of what the judges are ruling is time that is essential. Now, that time is not drudgery. That time, I really enjoy that part of the analytical work. But the factual drudgery, you know, pouring through documents, trying to piece things together, you can get some satisfaction from the result, like building a sandcastle or a Lego building, but it's not inherently interesting in itself. Interesting. What I hear is thinking about the law and digging into the law is less taxing on you than trying to learn the facts. Thinking about the law, I think that's exactly right. I think thinking about the cases, you know, trying to reconcile some of the things that look maybe at first glance as inconsistent in opinions. I think that is, you know, part of what I really enjoy about the practice of law. And factual investigation is not without its rewards. It can be very satisfying and it can be very interesting in itself. However, the amount of time that you spend, and for me, reading is laborious, and it's maybe particularly laborious for me compared to some other people. So the amount of time that you spend trying to track down facts, trying to reconcile facts, 
while it's not without its interest and perhaps charm, it's got a high drudgery content to it. <laughs> That's a funny combination of words, interest, charm, and drudgery. It actually accurately depicts kind of how I see trial prep as well, which is I do find some intrigue. I definitely find drudgery and there is something kind of elegant about it too. I want to ask you about roles. And also, I want to circle back to what you were saying about reading. A lot's been written about you in, you've been interviewed a lot about dyslexia and your pathway to that. And so where I'd like to start is kind of almost ask a follow-up question to what's already out there about your journey with dyslexia. What has been the single most effective tool or strategy for you to address the way that reading is perhaps more laborious for you than others? I think the single most important strategy has been listening and developing the ability to really listen to what people say. When I grew up in the 1940s in farm country in Illinois, Nobody had ever heard of dyslexia, or if they had, nobody in Marengo, Illinois had ever heard of it, and I certainly hadn't. And I grew up not really knowing why I had difficulty reading. I was lucky in the sense that in that environment, nobody really associated the ability to read quickly with intelligence. I think one of the things that is hard for young people with dyslexia today is that so much of how people are evaluated in terms of intelligence is based on reading. And I think that people can get discouraged about their abilities, their overall abilities, because they have difficulty reading. I was lucky in the sense that that didn't really affect me. Boys I grew up with weren't particularly interested in reading anyway. So <laughs> I didn't feel that I was at any disadvantage. And I did other things in school very well. And I was able to do that because I learned to listen. I didn't read at all until I was in third grade. And then basically about the only thing I read were comic books. So I didn't read what I was given in terms of written materials, but I listened in class and I learned to listen well. And that has served me particularly well in the practice of law. I can not only listen and absorb, but I can listen and hear hesitancies, hear ambiguities, hear where people may be uncomfortable in what they're saying. So the ability to listen has been something that I think both has been an effective strategy and has turned out to be a useful advantage. What does someone do to develop the ability to listen? I think that's a really great question because I think probably the best way to develop an ability to listen is to have to have that ability. It is something that you are forced to rely on it. I think you have an advantage in terms of focus. You know, people who are blind really have to, you know, develop their other senses, including the ability to listen. I think people with dyslexia develop and ability to listen out of necessity. So I think the greatest motivation is necessity. I think that if you're trying to 
teach somebody to listen who may not have the same necessity imperative. I think patience is probably the most important aspect of it. You've got to be patient if you're listening. Have you always been patient? I think I have always been patient. My father taught me early on patience. And I think I probably have always been patient, certainly from high school. Former teachers who have been interviewed have remarked on the fact that when I was in high school, I was patient. One of them said, I always listened before I talked. And that's partly because I needed to listen in order to know what to say. But it's also partly the patience of not feeling the necessity to speak before I had to. Your career spans broadly. As a lawyer, you've done governmental work with the Judiciary Committee and Senator Kennedy. You've done work representing Al Gore and Bush versus Gore. You've cross-examined Bill Gates doing antitrust work on behalf of the Department of Justice. You've represented George Steinbrenner, victims of the Jeffrey Epstein tragedy, tobacco companies, Enron, CBS, just such a broad spectrum work on the Proposition 8 in California. If you had to pick one case, which David Boyes is personally most proud of, which would it be? It's a good question. It's a hard question. I've got six children and it would be impossible for me to you know, pick which is the most important. And I feel a little bit about my cases that way. However, I think that the marriage equality litigation is almost certainly the single case that I am most proud of. It is a case that when we took it on, we were subject to a considerable amount of criticism, both from the left and from the right. I mean, not only were we opposed by forces that still exist that want to discriminate against gay and lesbian citizens. But we also faced criticism from gay rights activists who thought that the case that we were bringing was too radical and too soon. They thought that we needed to wait to reach for true marriage equality and that we would lose in Supreme Court and actually end up setting back the cause of equal justice. And so that was a difficult case to bring in the face of those kind of criticisms. And it was a case that when we prevailed, I think changed more people's lives than have been affected by any other case that I've ever done. It is something that made a difference in millions of people's lives in a positive way. That case certainly would be the single case I would pick. Well, there's so many pathways to go there. I'm going to start with what seems to me to be, at least on the outside, an unlikely pairing of you and Ted Olson, who was your opposing counsel in Bush versus Gore. What was it like working with someone you had worked against in such a high-profile case? Well, it was great. Ted is great to work with, and he's particularly great to work with when he's on your side. It's a lot better to have him on your side than to have him on the other side. And it was a great working relationship. What a lot of people don't know is that although we were passionate advocates for our respective sides in Bush v. Gore, 
and passionately believed in the side that we were representing. We were never really enemies. And out of that, we actually became close friends prior to the time that we took on the marriage equality battle together. I'd known Ted a little bit, as you do somebody who is prominent in your profession prior to Bush v. Gore, but we were not really friends or really even close acquaintances. But you can't go through a battle as intense as Bush v. Gore and not get to know the person on the other side really well. And when it's somebody who you admire and respect, both from a standpoint of competence, but also in terms of integrity, it is somebody that you tend to grow close to. Some of my closest friends are people who I have battled with in the courtroom. Chuck Cooper, Joe Jamail, Ted, of course, are all people who I initially met in very high-profile litigation where we were on opposite sides, but people who I came to know and admire and respect and ultimately became close friends with. I think people who are not lawyers sometimes have a hard time understanding the fact that you can be passionate and aggressive gladiators for the clients that you represent, but at the same time, admire, respect, and even be friends with the person who's on the other side. Yes. As we're talking, I just pulled up pictures of you and Ted Olson. I'm kind of looking at it. And the question that's going through my head, I'm going to say it in a very colloquial fashion, not a fancy way, but it's like, who is the lead dog here? You know, like, <laughs> do you get what I'm saying? It's like two gladiators working together. How do you collaborate without allowing ego or anything else get in the way of what's best for the case? I think that it comes from a number of different places. One of them is that I think when you do it as long as Ted and I have done it, you understand what really matters is the ultimate outcome. If you win, you're both going to be heroes. And if you lose, you're both going to be dogs. And so what you want to do is you want to do whatever is best for the case and whatever is best for the client. So I think that it helps a lot when you're trying to figure out not what do I most want to do, but what is going to be best for the client. Now, that's what you ought to always do as a lawyer, but it helps in terms of motivation to keep in mind that that's the way that you're going to most likely win, and winning in the ultimate sense is what it's about. So I think part of it is that both of us were concentrating on doing whatever was best in our view for the case. I think another aspect of it, and this was particularly true for the marriage equality litigation, I think the importance of that litigation to our clients, to other gay and lesbian citizens, to the country, to our society, was so great and so apparent that I think that even if we had been inclined to be more egocentric, I think we would have suppressed that 
just in the context of the importance of the work that we were doing. I think that you saw great lawyers from both firms doing whatever needed to be done in a seamless way for the case. That could mean a really accomplished litigation partner, you know, going back and doing associate work because it needed to be done at two o'clock in the morning and there wasn't anybody else there to do it. I think everybody, and that included Ted and myself, were affected by the importance of what was at stake. And I think that helped build the team together. Yes. That's helpful. Ever a moment where you and Ted completely disagreed and one person had to defer? There was never any time when we didn't talk it through and decide what the right thing to do was. There were issues that one of us felt more strongly about than the others. We had a lot of very complicated strategic decisions to make. But one of the things I think people can sometimes find remarkable, but wasn't as remarkable when you understand the context, was that we talked it through and we always ended up at a place that we were both comfortable with. And I had a great deal of respect for his judgment about dealing with appellate issues. And I think he had a great deal of respect for my judgment in terms of dealing with trial issues. So I think that helped in terms of reaching a consensus. But what really helped was the fact that without any false modesty, I mean, we were both really good lawyers. And you get two really good lawyers and two really experienced lawyers. We've been doing it for a long time. And you spend the time to really talk things through. And far more often than not, you're going to reach a consensus. That's been my experience for decades. When somebody who has been following that litigation and looking at it, it seems like the cross-examinations were pivotal in the factual case. But the part that I was left with was the framing of the issue, the way that you and Ted Olson framed the issue, to me, seemed to be the most critical thing. I think that's right. I think that the factual record that we developed, in part through cross-examination of the other side's own witnesses, I think was important. But I think in one sense, once you have framed the issue right in that case, the end result is inevitable. I think that once you look at it in the right way, it was something as to which there really wasn't or shouldn't have been a dispute. I've often said that the other side didn't really have a theory. They had a bumper sticker. You know, marriage is between a man and a woman. Once you tried to probe that, either analytically or historically, there was nothing to support it. And I think that once the issue was properly framed, it was something that there really was not a viable argument on the other side. I think that my friend and another person who I admire greatly, Chuck Cooper, who was the lead lawyer on the other side, did the best job he could. But it was something in which I don't think I've ever had a case where I could not think of what I would argue on the other side. Hmm. Was there a moment in the Prop 8 litigation where 
the theory, the framing gets like put up on a whiteboard or on a computer screen or like, is there some moment where you and Ted Olson or whoever else is sitting at the table have an aha moment? This is the frame. No, I don't think so. I think it more evolved and it was something that we were consistent with really from the beginning. If you go back and look at the press conference that we held when we announced it, the way we articulated the issues there were really the same way we articulated the issues when we got to the Supreme Court several years later. I think we had early on the right framing of the issue. It was a lot of work to implement it and present it. One of the things that we did from the beginning was recognize that we had more than one audience. I mean, you always have the trial audience and the appellate audience, but we also had the court of public opinion. And it was important not only that we win the legal right to marry for our clients, but it was important that when they did marry, it'd be something that society accepted. And I think that one of the things that we accomplished during that was to continue to move the needle in terms of public acceptance. That needle was already moving when we took the case on. The hydraulics for marriage equality had really been set in motion long before Ted and I took the case on. But I think that our odd couple aspect to it helped drive the discussion, helped move the discussion along, not just in court, but outside of court as well. We're going to take a pause here. We had a long interview with David, and we've decided to divide it into two parts. In the second part, I'm going to be talking with David about his cross-examination of Bill Gates, dealing with moral and ethical tensions, and specifically the tensions of representing Harvey Weinstein and the New York Times. And we also talk about when is a good time to retire. It was a really good conversation. I hope you'll join us back to listen to that. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Episodes drop on Thursdays. Subscribe now to catch every discussion. Thank you for listening.